Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. In each episode, we talk through a proposal for reform or we assess the current situation and we talk about what we know and what we don't know. We question our assumptions about how politics works and try to get beyond the red and the blue. All right, today, you guys want to talk about political realignment? Sounds great. All right, yeah. let's do it. Absolutely. All right, so uh, so what's, what's the deal? Are, are we in a political realignment? I don't know. What is realignment? So political realignment, a couple of things. So this comes out of uh, some political science from the middle of the 20th century. We're just going to float that for you. We're not going to take you too deeply into it. Um, but the basic idea is that there are some elections that bring about fundamental political change that parties are parties are coalitions, and those coalitions don't naturally always have to be together. So there are times when those coalitions will shift, the issues that politics is about will shift, and we see, you know, fundamental change in the terms of American electoral politics. In in history, the elections that some scholars have identified as realignments are kind of the big ones you might think of. So 1860, where we have the, the recent formation of the Republican Party, and that becomes the, the dominant party as the Democratic Party kind of cracks apart. Um, 1932, where we see the New Deal coalition come together, and then that becomes the, the dominant party. Those are kind of the big ones to think what, about. What, what about 1896? So hold on. Before we get into the history, I think we can make this even simpler, right? Like it might, my, my Wait, grand- I, thought, I thought we're complicating. No, let's here. let's make it simple first. Oh, no, it's complicated. Okay. But the idea, right. look, I mean, the bottom line is that parties live off disagreements in society, right? I mean, we have a we have a, a democratic republic, a democracy, a republic, whatever you want to call it. But the bottom line is that the people are in charge, and so you have society, and there's lots of disagreements, and and those disagreements are reflected in what the parties do and what they fight about. And people oftentimes talk about this idea of demographics as destiny. And I think that's nonsensical because demographics is just a fancy term for groups, right? You got groups and groups are just a bunch of people. And what do we know about people? Hold on. What do we know about people? They're all equal and they're all different and they all have their own minds and they all want to do different things. And over time, people, for whatever reason, are going to change how they prioritize certain problems. They're going to change their views on certain issues. And so as that process happens, as it unfolds, as this churn happens, it all bubbles up and eventually the parties that people are organized into to achieve political change are going to look different and they're going to do different things and they're going to relate to each other in different ways. And I think that is the kind of bedrock foundation against which or from which realignment is a concept as we know it takes place, right? Let's stick on the history for a minute because I think I think like the election of 1860, that's like a, a, a really interesting election for and that really, really hits home the idea of realignment, right? Because for for most of the, the first half of the 19th century, we had a particular party system, right? And it was a party system that depended on slavery being the, the, the cross-cutting dimension in both parties, right? That both parties were divided over the issue. And so it, it suppressed that as, as an issue of national conflict. And then in the 1850s, as westward expansion brought that issue to a head, uh, the, the the party system couldn't con- contain that issue anymore, and it became essentially a, a new a new issue that that reoriented the parties. Right? First, it split the the Whig Party and basically killed the Whig Party, and then it split the Democratic Party, and then you have the election of 1860, uh, in which Abraham Lincoln wins as a Republican president with 39 percent of the vote. 
But this is a great example of what I just said. Look, I mean, you have the Jacksonian Democrats and you have the Whigs. And for all intents and purposes, they're both divided over this issue, this critical issue of slavery. And when both of these parties are kind of firmly in place, there's not enough people in America that want to uh, agitate on slavery and make that the issue. There's a lot, but there's not enough. And there there's differences of opinion in the North and in the South. And over time, what happens is that, uh, is that the people change on this issue and it, and it slowly gets pushed up to the top of the agenda. And when that happens, it challenges the parties as they exist in that time. Right. And in that place, splits the coalition and the parties try to keep it off the agenda, but the people being in charge, ultimately that's not going to work. And they want to see their issues adjudicated in some way. And ultimately we see it with the, with the emergence of a Republican party and then a civil war, but realignments don't all end in war and they don't all end with the new parties, right? I mean, realignments can look different at different times, but it, it fundamentally at its core is describing this process of change that takes place amongst American voters and American citizens. Yeah, I think that's right. And some of the some of the critiques of realignment are that this doesn't just happen and you know in one watershed moment. It's kind of always happening. I think there's a couple of important things in, in what you just said, James. One is the theory of whether whether this kind of change happens from the bottom up or the top down. You know, one of the ways that we might typically think about, about these kinds of realigning moments is that elites see an opportunity. And they see a way to to exploit these kinds of issues that have been de-emphasized and bring them to the fore. And they see a political political gain to be had there. And that I think you know that's that's a sort of standard account. There might be a different elite centered account. There might be some of what you said kind of illustrates. So what you said kind of suggests that some of this is coming more from the electorate. That people have a kind of a demand; they want their needs to be to be met. They want their policy issues to be addressed, um, and that you see that in some of the written realignment theory too. This idea of a boiling point election, where usually there's a third party, and where people are are so pissed off that they're yeah. But I, to jump in real quick, I think it can happen and does happen from all different places. Maybe simultaneously, maybe some more at certain times than others. But I think the bottom line is you have a way of kind of doing politics or thinking about politics as it exists at that time. And then all of a sudden something happens, people get upset, or maybe there's an an actor who comes along and sees something that no one else sees. And then all of a sudden acts in a different way or tries to change, maybe like Jackson, for instance, or Teddy Roosevelt or someone else. And they change politics because they're acting in a different way. It's kind of like the guy who did the high jump, right? What was his name? Flop, uh, you know, and he all of a sudden he decides he's going to do the jump differently. The Fosse. And then, yeah, and then fast forward, you know, a little bit later, everybody's jumping like he was. So you're thinking of this as like paradigm shifts. Hmm. So, all right. So I I think history is useful because, I mean, the the whole realignment theory is is an interpretation of history. So we've got the election of 1860. Uh, Some people call the election of 1896 a realignment election. You've written on the election of 1896, Julia. That is true. I have. My sense of that as a as a realignment, I mean, what I've written about it is not exactly as a realignment, but as a kind of mirror of the current situation in terms of the level of nationalization and economic inequality. The system of 96 idea sort of posits that the Democrats, after the Civil War, the Democrats were pretty split on whether they were going to be economically conservative or not, right? You do have strong business interests in the Northeast and within the Democratic oh, Party. Because that's the, the Democratic right. coalition is right. this coalition of... of of, so, of of South plus Eastern right. establishment 
Grover Cleveland, you know, hard money. Right, exactly. And, and Fiscal 18, probity. The 1896 conventional realignment wisdom is – this is this is when the party goes the direction of William Jennings Bryan and becomes a populist party. They co-opt the populist party's platform from 1892. And you have this really kind of clear distinction between the two parties. That makes it kind of weird when you think about the system of 1896 and then moving into the New Deal era, right? That actually makes those sort of the same era. It's just that FDR was better at building a national coalition than William Jennings Bryan. Right. And it, you also have issues like imperialism that divide both parties at the time. As well, right? right? And, right. I, and I think that's the fundamental thing. What are the things that unite the parties? And then what are the things that divide the parties? And to what extent are the things that divide the parties kept off the agenda or are put on the agenda in the way that leads to a certain outcome? Right. Right. I mean, the post-Civil War party system was really a North versus versus South divide. Right? It was really, really relitigating the Civil War for a long time. And then the parties were more or less just coalitions of, of tariff policy that right. benefited different yes and no but I mean, economic imperialism interests. comes along and it, it could have gone differently and upended that entire thing now it, the reason why it didn't is certainly because of what you're saying like free silver and other issues that, that complicated that but you had certain elements in the in the north with carnegie and others right you had brian and you had the kind of western yeoman farmer you had certain elements in the south um that that coalesced along around this kind of anti-imperialistic um thing i mean even in south carolina you had the two democratic senators punching each other on the floor during the debate over whether or not we should annex Cuba or maybe it was the other debate, maybe the Philippines. I forget the debate, but the bottom line is they didn't agree on this issue and they didn't agree intensely. Right. I mean, the point is that you had a lot of internal party divisions Correct. at the time uh, that eventually came to the surface and the, the, the internal party division that came to the surface was was within the Democratic Party between the, the farmer populist wing and the Eastern establishment wing. And when Brian won the con- won the nomination in 1896, uh, that brought that issue to the surface. Now, I, I mean, I guess the argument that in 19, 1932 being the, the recapitulation of that is by the 1920s, both parties were, again, economically conservative parties. And so you had sort of relapsed to an earlier alignment. And it's only with the election of, of 1932 that the Democrats really become the, the, the party of, of an act of government and a social welfare state, which cre- which makes that the new salient dimension that divides the parties and then, and then finally relegates the question of national identity dimension to, to be the, the, the issue that divides both of the parties internally. But right. this is key. I mean, the, a, a precondition for realignment at least for us to understand politics in those terms, is this idea that you have constituent groups within parties. And those constituent groups are going to think about politics and prioritize issues in politics in different ways. And there's a competition amongst them about what is going to be important and what are they going to emphasize for whatever reason. And and it could go lots of different ways. But ultimately, that's the fundamental thing. And today, I think when we talk about realignment, it's as if, okay, well, you have Democrats. And yes, we might begrudgingly agree that they don't all agree. But what is the question is, are they going to be a liberal party, which means all the Democrats who aren't liberals are just going to suck it up and be liberals? And like, I don't know if that's the case, but that's different than how we understand realignment historically, right? I mean, we think of it as, okay, you are fixed. And Julia, you can speak to this. I mean, you you were like born with a Democratic or Republican tattoo on your forehead at birth, and this is who you are. And But that's to understand realignment. I think it, you have to understand it in terms of individuals and groups changing their minds about what they're going to do with these parties, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, I think one of the things 
where some of this history is useful for us is if we if we're looking at the you know the Democrats and the Republicans around the turn of the 20th century, I think there's a lot of open questions about what exactly constituted ideology. And you kind of see this with the Republicans in particular. You had progressive capital P, progressive Republicans who were, on the one hand, really in favor of cleaning up politics and those kind of reforms. But there are questions about, like, when it came down to things like regulating business, how much were they really different from some of their more more overtly pro-business counterparts, for example? And so that really speaks to this question of what even are ideological labels? Hmm. To what degree do ideological labels smooth over or obscure these differences, even, even when we're talking about ideological labels as ways to identify factions within parties. And I think that's right. And so I think this kind of brings us to one of our big questions as regards realignment, which is, to what degree are there what, what political scientists call cross-pressured voters? To what degree are there people up for grabs who, might, who are in one coalition now who might switch? Well, so let, let's break down this idea of, of cross-pressured voters a little bit more and, and why, why do cross-pressured voters matter so much for political realignment? Yeah, so a, a cross-pressured voter might be someone who part of their identity or part of their belief system would lead them to be a Democrat and part of it would lead them to be a Republican. So, so like they might be conservative on immigration, but they might want a, want a big social welfare state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the other example I was thinking of as I was kind of thinking about contemporary politics is this argument about, a, um, actually, maybe that's not a good argument, but a Christian left, just kind of an idea about redefining what religion means to, what specifically Christian alignment might mean to inform your party ID. So, like, what like what would a Christian left position look like in today's politics? So, a lot of stuff that Pete Buttigieg has been talking about, where you're kind of shifting that, the Christian identity that's been associated with being Republican, being conservative on social issues, to being liberal on the, on the environment or liberal on immigration. So, it's not, it's not exactly cross-pressure, but it's sort of like a shifting way of thinking about the relationship between a social identity and a party identity. But to what extent has that always been there, right? I mean, I mean you certainly see this in the Catholic Church, I think, right now, with the, with the current pope as well. I mean, the bottom line is that there's, I mean, you know, the the... the conservative Christian coalition implies that there is such a thing as a Christian conservative. And that Christian conservative is what all Christian conservatives look like. But people being people, people being free, are going to manifest their their views in different ways. And there may be, yes, there may be similarities and large similarities, but people are going to be different. And that in their views on their relative positions on what the government should and should not do are going to change over time as the environment changes and their position relative to the government and that environment changes. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. I mean, these things aren't fixed. This is a dynamic thing. So, so let's break this down a little bit. I mean, I think a point that we keep coming back to is the idea that that the both parties are political coalitions with with a lot more heterogeneity than than we give them credit for. And let me jump in on that too. Sorry, but we have we think about parties as these national things, and I think they are, but they're also. 50 different Democratic parties and 50 different Republicans, or maybe if you got one in the America Samoa or something, or Guam, you got 52, I don't know. But like, there is no one Democratic party. There is no one Republican party. Now, in some respects, there are. So I think that further complicates things too, right? One of the assumptions behind the idea of living in a polarized country now is that it's it's nationalization and that there are fewer differences yeah. across region. But I don't I mean, I think we can question that assumption for sure. I mean, certainly if we, we look at the empirical data and, and I, I there's a there's a great book by by Dan Hopkins, uh, The Increasingly United States, where he chose 
the extent to which American politics is nationalized and people don't really pay attention to their local elections and they vote based on uh, how they feel about the president and that the uh, local elections are highly correlated with national elections. So I think more I think this is this is something that is actually unusual about this period in American politics is to the extent that politics is truly nationalized in a way it never has been f- before. And question whether that that has made politics more homogenous than it ever has been and has drained American politics, party politics of, of the potential for realignment because it's so homogenous now, even though there is still heterogeneity within that homogeneity. So, I mean, I, James, I take your point that that people are complicated and people are mobilized and motivated in very different ways. And so it's a little bit reductive to say here, here is this battery of social identities or of issue positions. And we can just, we can assume we can guess who people are based on knowing one. Um, but in practice, I think that's kind of true. Um, and that partisan identity is, is become really strong. And that's where, you know, I was thinking about some of the issues that people have typically identified as, as issues that divide each party internally in the current moment. And the two that come to mind and the two that have been really important in the Trump era are immigration and trade. And essentially what's happened is instead of seeing the two parties fundamentally fracture around those issues, you've seen, I think, the Democrats become more coalesced around a leftward position on immigration. Um, the Republicans, to some degree, have become Trump's party on immigration. I think that's that's an open question. There may be room for fracturing there. But similarly on trade, I think you've seen Republicans just move over to more of the Trump position. And the Democrats have had a harder time, I think, responding to that because there's a strong anti-trade position within the Democratic Party. But I don't really see either of those issues like fundamentally shifting politics, right? They're just reshaping the parties a little bit. I agree. And I think the understanding why that's the case helps us better understand what's happening in this moment. I, I think, look, we've we've had periods in American pol- political in our past where we've been incredibly nationalized. Think about the Reconstruction era. I mean, people weren't voting in the South based on their local politics. They were based on how much they didn't like Republicans, right? And so I think that's always, that's been there before. I think the difference now is you're right about immigration. This is a great example. But key to this is the fact that the Democrats and the Republicans don't act on immigration. Because when you act on something, you reveal your information about where you stand on it. You reveal information about the positions you're willing to take. And what that does is it give, reveals information to voters who can then say, okay, ooh, I like this kind of Democrat or I don't like that kind of Democrat. And so when all you do is talk about immigration, when all you do is talk about DACA and no one actually does anything about DACA and you kick it to the courts to resolve, what that does is that allows you to preserve the fiction of unity on issues that don't actually aren't people aren't unified on. And whenever you see the Congress actually actually have to act on immigration, you begin to see the mess and the confusion that's there. And it doesn't mean that we're not uh, divided on the issue. I think we are. I think there are big, major divisions. My point is that those divisions don't fall along party lines. And that's the thing that drives realignments in the past. And I think the reason why it's not driving a realignment in the same way today is because nobody's acting on these issues. Let let me push you on something, uh, James, which is you said this kind of Democrat or that kind of Democrat. Right. And, and that's what realignment depends on, right, that you have a split within the party and that voters will then vote based on issues as opposed to just partisanship. Right? I think what Julia is saying is that while there might be this kind of Democrat or that kind of Democrat on immigration, in reality, the Democratic position on immigration is, is quite unified now, in part because it's 
it's in opposition to Trump. And that's because partisan identities are structuring how people think about politics far more than than issue positions. So, James, your your position, I think, is that people would care about issues more if they could differentiate different types of Democrats or different types of Republicans. No, my position, I think my position, sorry to interrupt, is that I think Democrats in the Appalachia, I think Democrats in the Rust Belt would most certainly question their partisan affiliations if the Democratic Party woke up every morning saying, we're going to do everything we can to resolve immigration in a way that leads to more open borders, more um, liberal policies towards immigrants that are here, guest worker programs, whatever, right or wrong. I think that people would change their position if if they are put in a position where their, their, their policy position whatever they may be, for whatever reason they have them, are conflicting with their partisanship. I think the secret today is that we don't put voters in that position because we think about and do politics differently. And that's why we don't see the change. I think that's I think that's right. And that's insightful. And I, I'm sort of turning this over in my head because I, I mean, I generally agree with you, right, that a lot of these divisions are, they're real and they're impassioned and people feel very strongly but when it comes to governance they're quite superficial. And one thing and it's not just democrat. I mean Republicans no. in the south on trade for instance and this idea of a neoliberal world order. I mean and you have Republicans like Jeff Sessions, you have Republicans in Alabama and they are not Republicans on Wall Street. They are not Republicans in places like Arizona and California. They aren't even Republicans in places like Atlanta and Chicago and other places. It may be a court country divide. I don't know what it is, but we're not putting people in this position to choose. And I think that's key. I think, yeah, I think that's right. I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking about it. I think on the one hand, that's fundamentally what changes coalitions over the course of over the course of American history is doing is doing stuff, right? Is the actual doing of the policy, which then has implications, some of which are unanticipated or have unanticipated effects on the coalition. And you're right, when we don't when the when no one does the policy, um, that changes the the impact. On the other hand, I think there's there's a couple other things going on. And one is if we think if we use the DACA example, even though I mean, first of all, that did happen, that Obama did issue that executive order and Trump did you know, did push back against it when he was, when he um, entered office. And so now, as you point out, it's in the courts. But things really did happen. And the things that happened there maybe didn't force members of the coalition to confront the implications of their beliefs, but it did frame the issue in a particular way, right? And did frame the issue in terms of a particular kind of, in this case, kind of undocumented person in the United States, a particular kind of immigrant, and so it locates the issue in a way that then I think allows people to further align whatever they think their identity is to that kind of appeal. And I think that DACA is an issue that that really did that, where you have if people have a kind of self-concept that they believe in, they believe in law and order, they believe in borders, then DACA is, is like custom made to aggravate them. But let's think about it like DACA is a great example. President Obama says, I'm going to act. He does. And then you have, say, a Democrat sitting in, in West Virginia saying, well, I didn't vote for Obama. I'm still, you know, a Democrat, though, because I identify with the party and Roosevelt or whatever, and I'm going to mansions my senator. And so it's a way, it's almost like it releases a little steam. Republicans on the same side, they're, you know, they're calling Obama a tyrant, but yet they don't even act. And then you have a Trump who tries to do something but doesn't. It's almost like he's happy that the courts have taken it out of his hands. And now both sides say, I'm I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but no one other than the courts, which everybody thinks is a, is a nonpartisan in place is acting. I mean, so it's, in, so, I mean, the, gov- the Democrats are like, we're going to shut the I government down. I have other stuff I want to say, though. Yeah. So I think that's right. But I do think these symbolic appeals, they deepen the coalition. It's not that they do nothing, right? It's that they deepen the symbolic and identity-based coalition. Another way we can apply this to understand what's going on in our politics is what are the times when someone has, has really done something that's 
fundamentally changed politics and policy. And the big example of that is the Affordable Care Act. And I think that does kind of explain, I mean, in some ways that divides Democrats, not in a way that necessarily is clearly crystallized along factional lines, but that is where I think we can see a lot of the political liability for the Democrats for the subsequent eight years coming out of that. But on the Affordable Care Act, I'd also add, though, that if, if you fast forward to today, it looks like there's a lot more agreement fundamentally on what that on, on the law than we thought. It doesn't separate Republicans and Democrats. And if you look back in 2,500 years or so, I think most people will have a hard time distinguishing the difference between the two parties when it comes to health care. Well, in, in, in that future, I, I don't think people will be caring too much about that. Um, but so the, but let, the let me still there. The, the, let, let, me, let me bring another angle on this, which is – uh, larger socioeconomic forces, right? So, you know, one argument is that the realignment comes when new new issues emerge, right? So it's th- that the normal pattern of American politics is this sort of essentially stasis in which parties are fighting the same battles for extended periods in which you just have uh, extension of of long-standing battles and and there are tensions beneath the surface that are that are always there and waiting to to break out but it's only only when major socioeconomic conditions change that that you force voters to actually raise those issues to to a level where they're willing to reassess their their partisan alignment. So the Great Depression uh, and then the, 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 the realignment of 1932 is the classic example of that. Uh, is that what it would take for a political realignment? Is it just, do, do we need something like that? Or is there a natural tension that's building up in the system now? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you do. I think that's part of it. But I th- and I think you also need people to take advantage of that. And to recognize it and but, to act in ways that, that put which, issues which, on the agenda. Which, which people? Whether, whether it be some uh, political leader that's not in office, whether it be a political leader that's in office, whether it be a new use of, an, of technology, whether it be uh, I'm going to speak directly to the people now as opposed to doing politics the way we've always done it. But I think you need some sort of agency. It's not just the force, right? So, so something that, that forces a new, a new choice, right? I mean, yeah, if, you need people trying to win. Fundamentally, you need people trying to do things differently to win policy, but but win in a way that that's that's at at, at cross purposes with the existing alignment, right? That what it, what is the issue that would split the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in a way that would yield a new alignment? Trade in, and immigration, in right? I think right now, if you had if you had charismatic leaders, if if Trump was actually what people thought Trump was, if Trump actually wanted to win on immigration and was not willing to defer to a district court judge somewhere to say, you can't do this, and you can do that, and he forced the issue, as opposed to saying, well, I'd love to do it, but I'm a victim, I can't, then I think you would see a, it'd get pretty interesting. I don't know what it would end, I don't no idea what it would look like, but it would be different. Same with trade. But it's remarkable how we talk about politics in these ways, but we, if you look at it, I mean, Trump looks like he's governing like George W. Bush with a bad Twitter habit when it comes to trade and on immigration for that matter. I mean, it's not really rocking the boat all that much. I mean, yeah, there's some sensational things on the surface, but bottom line, in terms of day in and day out policymaking, it looks pretty much the same. So then, then query, why? Why? All right, we're, we're pushing the why off to me. Awesome. Uh, why? Or you could yeah. disagree too. I, I mean, mean, yeah. I, I may not be right. I, I don't, I, I'm not totally convinced that Trump's governance looks like Bush with a bad Twitter habit particularly on on immigration. I mean, I think that's an issue that's divided the Republican Party for a long time. And everybody should have seen Trump's appeals coming in the in the splits on um, immigration within the Republican Party when Bush was president. But 
Okay, so why is this the case? I mean, there's a couple possible there's a couple possible reasons, right? One is that and one is just development of politics in time. So as interest groups have become, they're more coalesced, right? Just organizationally coalesced um, and organizationally embedded within each of the parties. And as that happens, they're less likely to, to switch over, even in a time of, of political turmoil. That, I think, is a sort of dominant explanation. I think the other one really does come down to particularly within the active electorate, people who turn out to vote, is kind of weight of mass polarization. And this was where, so I, I did write a piece, I wrote a piece that to some degree contradicted my other 1896 piece um, with Mark Hetherington, but I wrote a piece in 538 in 2016 where I said, we'll probably see a recalibration, but not a realignment. And I think that that, I still stand by that description of political change, where parties will take on different issues, they'll even change their stances, but the groups in society that are fundamentally aligned with the parties are very well entrenched. And I think there's reasons there are reasons that have to do with the way people think about their voting choice. There's reasons that have to do with the interest group environment. But I don't see that having a lot of fluidity. So let me let me ask you to explain that a little bit more, sure. Julia. Is what you're saying that people care more about their partisan team than they care about the issues and they're willing to adjust their views on most issues in order to to stick with their partisan. Or, I think we have a lot of evidence that that's true. Or are they or are they battling over what the meaning of that that team what the what the partisan name means, right? So they're maybe not saying I'm going to become a democrat, but this is the kind of republican I think the Republican party needs to be about. Right. I think that's right. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying before about the way that that elites can define issues in particular ways and frame them in particular ways. So you could look at a given stance on a given issue in a lot of different ways. But if you frame it, you know, just so we're just going to carry this immigration example through, right? If you if you frame it around, this is about law and order, this is about American identity, this is about, you know, national security, um, an invasion, then that's going to that's gonna frame the party in a particular way. It's different than if you frame it around this is about human rights or this is about free labor or what have you. And I think we see that really clearly happening um, also with some of these questions on trade. I mean, you, you see mass opinion shift. Yeah. So you're saying that rhetoric actually matters a lot. Yes. And it's not it's it's not just avoiding the issues, but it's it's redefining them and reshaping them. So does that suggest that if elites have such power over issue definition uh, and elites presumably want to keep their coalitions together, not split them because that would that would cause them to lose power, are, are we just kind of stuck? I mean, I think there's an answer here that has to do with a sort of middle level. What I think we know is elites have some power to to reframe issues in ways that are very resonant with people who are, who vote and are engaged with politics, but unlike us, they don't live and breathe politics and read it all day long. Um, and so we have to we have to kind of remember that that's the the disconnect we're dealing with. But I think there's a middle level of people who are not necessarily office seekers themselves who are very active and engaged in politics. And so maybe those are folks that are that are in a position to to affect change, go you know, pushing both up and down on the elite eliteness so, ladder. So is that it suggests that we need people who are up and coming who want to re reshape what the parties stand for in order to advance their own power, like a like a AOC or a, on the Democratic side or a Mike Lee on the Republican side? I, yeah, I mean, I think that's the. I mean, I'm thinking even more sort of meso level than that, maybe. Okay. But but yeah, absolutely. People who have people who have some access to to power and a mouthpiece, and who aren't running for president. And that's the big thing that confuses me today. Because if you think about it, um, 
in terms of the status quo. And you have people that want to change it and people who don't. And usually the impetus for realignment comes from the those people, whether they be in government or not, who want to change the status quo. So they do things to kind of disrupt the balance of power, if you will. And that, and that by virtue of doing that, you end up getting kind of new parties or new kind of coalitions that dominate existing parties. And what's interesting to me is that everybody seems to be upset with the status quo today, yet no one seems to be willing to do anything. And if they were, it would change. It's it's not changing. It hasn't changed. It just gets worse. And I don't know of anybody who's happy about things right now. And AOC is a great example. She pushes this Green New Deal. And what does she say afterwards? She says, I made a mistake, not in standing for the Green New Deal, but in how I pushed it. And this is, to me, the secret for why nothing changes today. It's that we have this new norm of inaction, where if you want to change the world, don't act. Because if you act, you end up disrupting things. It's unpredictable. You have no idea how it's going to go. And it's almost like we're going to manage politics and it's going to be just fine. And I think the reason why we don't see at this lower level um, of groups or whoever, because you would think they would act too. If, if their elected representatives wouldn't, but they don't even act or so, they don't act in ways that would disrupt things. So what would action look like? Like what if AOC were going to truly use her mass Twitter following to – to upend politics, what should she do? You force votes on issues that you're going to lose, and you point to people who voted against you, and you say, see? And then you hope and you and you pray that everybody agrees with you and not them. And you do that over and over again, and eventually you get changed. So so should she? how could she force votes, given given the, the, the power that Pelosi well, she, has over the caucus? Right, the way that the Democratic Party defines itself as a liberal party gives her immense power, because everybody agrees that she's a liberal. Look, it's why people didn't like Ted Cruz. In the Republican Party, if you... Everybody says they're a conservative. Everybody says they're Rob Portman, Ted Cruz, Susan Collins, Mitch McConnell. Well, conservative is a meaningless label. Right. But they all say it. So if you have someone that everybody in your district or state thinks is conservative and they say we should do X and you don't agree with them doing X, you're not going to like that person very much. And you're going to want them to stop saying we should do X because they force you to then make a decision. Are you going to vote for X or not? And that's the kind of power that I think AOC has. And by saying, I made a mistake, that's a signal that she's already being socialized into this system of inaction. And it's a signal that we're going to have continued frustration and we're going to continue to blame the other side when in reality, we're not all victims. There are no victims in politics. If you're in the room, you're not a victim. So what would a realignment look like if if AOC took action? I mean, I still think that would probably be more of a recalibration. Okay. Um, well, then then that's... And so is a recalibration just that the parties stay the same, but this the balance of power within the parties changes or... Yeah, that, I mean, that might be one, one way to describe it. Yeah, or the, the issue positions change. So, I mean, I see that going on a lot with... Um, to use the, you know, the Democrats' example, the liberal... It's become a liberal party in ways that it wasn't, say, 20 years ago. People ran away from that label and some of the issue positions that went with it. But the fundamental coalition is not that different, right? It's still kind of like educated intellectuals and African-Americans and and some union voters, but, you know, increasingly fewer white men and who identify that way. You know, it's still, I mean, it's still in a lot of ways, it's still the New Deal coalition. And that coalition waxes and wanes. And we suburban voters are maybe, given what happened in 2018, are kind of like suburban, white, college-educated, are the... Swing constituency. Women. Women, particularly, yeah. Um, or the swing constituency, and that can really matter depending on who's on the ballot or whatever. But, like, if you were to look at the Democratic Party, it's basically, like, you get the New Deal Coalition, then in 1980, the New Deal Coalition starts to lose white men, particularly white men who do identify as union members, who are blue-collar, 
who are not college educated. And then that constituency continues to wane. Um, and like I said, it sort of shifts here and there. White women are swing constituency, but it's the same people. So so are we going to be in the same same party system regardless of who the, the Democrats nominate in 2020? Is there anybody in the field who could who could realign our politics? Well, I think we are until we aren't, right? I mean, the New Deal Coalition was formed to, to solve certain problems, and presumably either it will solve those problems or those problems will go the way or new problems will come on that, that fracture that coalition. And so the question becomes, which of these candidates exists that, can, that's, that perceives the way politics is going, number one, and then number two, understands better than anyone else how to play the game differently to take advantage of that and to, and to move politics in that direction. And I think that's ultimately what See, we're looking for. I mean, I think, the, I think the, if there is a realignment, it will come on the Republican side when somebody picks up how Trump ran in 2016 and actually implements that as a, as a policy. But the, the question is, why didn't Trump do that? The business community would have hated a lot yeah. of that, right? And the, and, and that, the one policy was, that was successful was the tax cut. And then our right. parties wouldn't appear as cohesive and, and polarized and, and agonistic as they, as they are. And so as long as the people who, who have a hold on power in our institutions have that hold, they're going to they're going to tamp down that chaos. So can I can I answer your question about the democratic field? Yes, please I think do. Some of the some of the intra-party divisions we've seen among the candidates really speak to the things that you would expect would divide the democratic party. Um so I was, I think, a little surprised a couple of weeks ago at the reaction that uh, the town hall question about should prisoners be allowed to vote that that, that got. Um, and that seemed to divide the Democratic candidates and some of these questions around um, around criminal justice and particularly where it intersects with other political rights. Um, the other question, I think we do have some big questions about immigration. We have some big questions about the, as you had, had pointed out, James, the implementation of health care, not differences about this sort of broad concept of addressing it and increasing people's access to it, but whether it should be through expanding and fixing the ACA or whether that should be Medicare for all. And I mean, I see these as kind of, they're all fissures that either have have the possibility of being kind of second tier issues that don't gain a huge amount of salience. Even as healthcare is very salient, maybe these particular divisions are less salient than the imperative to get stuff done. But they also seem like they potentially really tap deeply into identities and have have the potential to push the party to a transformative moment. I just think that parties, given the structure of the party system now, parties can have transformative moments without their coalition shifting very much. And I think that's that's somewhat confusing, but I think that that, you know, I'm not sure why that is, but I think that it might be the case. So we're getting towards the end, so we should wrap up a little bit. It seems like if we're thinking about what what causes a realignment, uh, we need to have some some amount of cross pressured voters who are willing to 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 put issues above partisanship, uh, a, a sort of change or or a new ambitious generation of political leaders who want to shake stuff up, and maybe some sort of exogenous external change in the socioeconomic landscape. Right. But I think the cross-pressured voter isn't, this isn't some like ideal voter who is like selflessly acting. It's, it's a, it's a regular person, every a school teacher, a factory worker who is confronted with the situation that challenges their partisanship and their policy view in any particular instance. And that's then when they become cross-pressured, hence the cross-pressure. 
And and so I think so that's that depends, the one thing about, that depends on the political yeah, conflict. We think about it as some ideal bipartisan, like, evenly minded. No, like, I mean I think I think people like, weigh things as like a it's an undecided uh, philosopher king who just can't make up his or her mind. I mean, uh, but that's not the way it works, right? I mean, it's you live your life and you're confronted with situations, and and you're in all of these identities we have are constructed to help us make sense of those situations, and sometimes they come into conflict. And when that happens, the whole world gets upended, and then you have to make decisions, and that's not a very fun place to be for most people. And that's the cross-pressured voter, I think, that ultimately drives change, whether it be recalibrations or realignments in American politics. Bring it home, Lee. So are we are we on the verge of a realignment or are we stuck where we are? I'm on team stuck. I'm on team stuck. We're going to be stuck until we're unstuck. Well, hopefully <laughs> all, all of you uh, listeners out there will, will stick with us for another episode of Politics in Question when we come back and, and ask more questions and, and have more political disagreements and and figure out that, that we have more questions than answers. To learn more, you can find our Twitter accounts and websites on the show notes. And anything we've cited or referred to will be there as well. Politics in Question is a joint product of New America and the R Street Institute. Lena Soros is our producer and a research associate in the political reform program at New America. Griffin Tanner is our audio engineer, and Jason Stewart is our production manager. Thanks for listening 